Amen. Well, I'm turning once again back to the Scripture we just read together, Hebrews 13. And I want to draw your attention to verse number 8, although we will be dealing with each of these first eight verses. But I want us to begin by thinking about that remarkable, amazing verse, that thought there in verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ, the same. The immutability of Jesus Christ. Immutable to be unchanging. With Christ unable to change. Not that He chooses not to change, but that He cannot change. Immutability is a wonderful truth. It's a grand doctrine. To consider that everything around us changes, yet Jesus Christ is the same. Every day, something changes. Every moment of every hour is a bit different than the day before. Everything changes, but Jesus Christ changes not. Even the Old Testament says the Lord does not change. I am the Lord. I change not. As we've been dealing with the book of Hebrews, the writer, of course, throughout this great epistle has been dealing with Christ. He's been dealing with the various offices and the aspects of Him as priest and prophet and king. We've talked about the faith that is found in Christ. We've talked about the free grace and all the privileges and benefits that come of being part of the kingdom of God. But remember, we started our study almost a year ago in the book of Hebrews with a warning against apostasy where the writer was warning the Hebrews of returning back to the things which could not save, to returning back to the ways of Judaism, to go back to the things that could not redeem them. And this last chapter, although not in its entirety and not in every verse, brings us to a place where we often refer to as the practical, proper fruits of faith. The things that are elements and aspects of one who is in the faith, the fruits of faith. Everyone who is in the faith will have fruit in their life. A person that says, I am a child of God, I am a believer, but has no fruit in their life is not a believer at all. There will always be fruit produced. There will always be the evidence and the effects of what has taken place in the life of a believer. And here the writer in really the first 17 verses, although we're only dealing with the first eight, he deals with the responsibilities of this faith the proper fruits of faith and in the remainder of the chapter in verses 18 through 25 the writer asks for prayers of faith for him he's essentially saying pray for me and in return i will offer prayers up to god for you the entire book of hebrews ends and we'll look at this over the next couple of weeks with this great hope of the writer seeing Timothy. And it ends with a benediction. Much how we end each one of our services with a benediction, a good word, a word from the Scripture. The immutability of Christ is the very foundation of everything we believe. If Christ could change in a single instance or a single characteristic, He would cease to be God. It is a foundational truth. It isn't something I can look at and say, well, I'll take or leave the immutability of God or the immutability of Christ. No, it is the foundation. And all the truths we've learned in this great epistle, if, 
if Christ could change all those promises we have, we would simply have to just discard them and say there is no real promise because if he can change, he could change his mind. Man has tried over the decades, over the centuries, to try to change God's mind by the way of salvation. Man has been trying to beg God to make salvation works-based. He does it by the evidence. He does it by what he thinks he's doing, and he thinks he's gaining favor with God. Even down to the part where man thinks he's doing God a favor by being in the church on a Sunday morning. There's nothing we add to God. There's nothing we can take away from God. We're not offering any benefit to God. We're not making God better, nor are we making Him worse. Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Not just yesterday on the calendar, but from eternity. Yesterday that's being referenced there is not just the date on the calendar yesterday. Not just on June 4th. And it's not just today on June 5th. And not just tomorrow on June 6th, but forever. He is not going to change. Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. The writer, having finished what we would refer to as the larger doctrinal part of the epistle, I say that with a little bit of caution because it doesn't mean the doctrine ends when we get to chapter 13, but it does close out with more practical exhortations than what we have seen. Some of these practical exhortations that are contained in chapter 13 are exhortations of brotherly love, godliness, unity and doctrine and spirit, And then words about various graces. There are various subjects that are mentioned. There is the subject of marriage. There is the subject of hospitality. There is the subject of praying for those that are in bonds. There's the subject of our conduct and our conversation. How we are to be content. Oh, how that is evasive, isn't it? And eludes us often being content. You'd think here in this nation we could figure out how to be content when we have it so much better than most every other nation in many ways. But contentment is elusive. I would tell you, friends, this morning that the only contentment you're ever going to find is in Christ Jesus because He's the only thing that doesn't change. Even today, your contentment will be found or attempted to be found in something else. What made you content yesterday won't be good enough today. But Christ is good for all of eternity. He was good in the past and He'll be good in the future. The subjects are very deep, but they're also very practical. It is what Spurgeon used to say that a a Bible message is not a message until the application is provided. And we certainly know that throughout the study of the book of Hebrews, there have been many applications. The subject of obedience is dealt with in this chapter. And also the subject of peace. If I look out on the landscape of the world today, we see anything but peace. We see anything but what appears to be a rest. But do you know for the believer, for those that are in Christ, there is a perfect peace. And it's to have peace with God. The reason we can be peaceful in a time of darkness is because we have peace with God because our sins have been paid for. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And we can have peace in the midst of chaos. 
You, you live out a testimony every single day by how you respond to what goes on in this world. And that peace that you have, that peace that passes all understanding, is a peace that comes from the presence of the Spirit of God, the comforter that Christ said, it's needful that I go away, but if I go away, I will send a comfort. I am, for one, very thankful for the comfort of the Spirit that doesn't make me panic every time something goes awry. Daily, something's going to go awry. Something that you thought was unchangeable is going to change, but Christ is not going to change. He's not going to be one of those changeable things. Your feelings today are going to change. You could have one disagreement with a person today, and your feelings for that person will change forever over one instance. Aren't you glad Christ's feelings for you didn't change because of your sin? Because He would have left us a long time ago because you and I displease Him every single day. Even in our holiest acts, we still sin against this great God. Yet there's redemption. There is salvation to be found. I want to divide our look at this passage this morning, these eight verses, with really two simple headings. And the first heading is going to deal with the first seven verses. And I've simply just entitled this an exhortation to Christ-like practical godliness. An exhortation to Christ-like practical godliness. The, the chapter begins with a principle, a command. Let brotherly love continue. So there is already the suggestion that brotherly love is already happening. And that is to continue. Brotherly love, the love between not necessarily blood siblings, but those who are in Christ. Brotherly love. Let it continue. Where is it to continue? In and among yourselves. We are to love all men. You know, we're even called to love our enemies. How difficult is that? We are called to love our enemies. But the love that's being spoken here is a special love between those who are part of the same family. It's a spiritual relationship. I love the brethren because of that spiritual relationship and that common salvation, that bond we have in Christ. The love he's talking about is not a love that is based on emotions and changeable things. It's based upon the merits and the love of Jesus Christ that he has for us. If my love for Christ was solely relied upon my feelings of love towards Christ, I would not love Christ like I should. I would continually be struggling with, do I really love Christ? It's the same way that happens between brethren. This is not a love that you can conjure up. This is not a love that is based upon feelings. It's a love that is based upon a relationship, a bond that is in Christ. Brotherly love includes praying for one another. It includes bearing one another's burdens. It includes forbearing and being patient and long-suffering one another. And then the big one, forgiving one another. As Christ hath forgiven you, we are to be forgiving people. If we can't forgive other brothers and sisters in Christ, who could we forgive? If you can't forgive another brother or sister in Christ, are you telling me you can forgive an unbeliever? We're to forgive. 
We're to pray for one another. Meet together to encourage. Without this type of love that the writer's talking about here, a profession of faith in Christ is useless. In other words, if you say you have faith, but you have none of these things, your profession is useless. If you hold your place here and go with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, this is specifically dealt with here. 1 Timothy, or 1 Peter chapter 2, rather, verse 17, says this, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The idea here is, is to give unto men that which is due to them. We are to love the brotherhood, honor men and kings. 1 John 3, verses 14 through 18, another passage here that kind of shows us this picture of brotherly love. 1 John 3, verse 14. Notice the depth of this. We know, that's a certainty, that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. I don't know if we really understand the seriousness of what John is writing there. It is impossible for you to hate the brethren and abide in eternal life. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Expounding that to modern vernacular, he says, what you say doesn't matter unless there are actually deeds to prove it. We say a lot of things. I could tell you face to face, I love you and not mean a word of it. I imagine we've probably all been guilty of that at one time in our life. If you haven't been guilty of that, praise the Lord for you. But we've all been guilty of saying we love and we don't love like we should. And yet that's the very heart of what begins this grand chapter of Hebrews 13. This love is said to continue without failure. Now remember the subject here, the immutability of Christ. His love never fails. I don't have the rights to this, but someone said it years ago and it has stuck with me. Christ can't love you any less and He can't love you any more. It doesn't, his love doesn't even change. You realize my love for my wife has changed over the years. And I hope yours has too. Because if it hasn't, that love that it was based upon originally is not enough. See, your love has to change. Your love changes in the human realm, but Christ's love doesn't change for you and I. And I can't get over that because I can't get over the fact, how could he love a wretch like me? And I'm not talking about a wretch I used to be. I'm talking about the wretch I am now. See, we like the, we like the, the preaching that talks about what I once was. Well, you know what? I'm still a depraved wretch. I still sin. And yet His love doesn't change for me. Show me anybody else in the world that will love you in spite of that. You won't be able to point to one 
Because it'll always change. Christ's love doesn't change. He says, let this brotherly love continue. May it be our fixed practice of our life. Love for one another ought to grow as our love for Christ grows. This really, when you read Hebrews 13, it reminds me a lot of going through the Proverbs because there's a lot of different thoughts that are all sandwiched together. You think he's going to talk about brotherly love for the remainder, but then he introduces hospitality. And he says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. It really is this idea of demonstrating hospitality to those you are in that relationship with. It's interesting that he uses the term angels. Again, angels can also mean of various different things. We often think in our human terms of angels, and of course the world has their picture of what an angel is, this cute little thing with wings, and uh, that's the way they picture it. But remember, the angels in Scripture also mentioned as messengers of God. We're going to learn that in our study of Revelation on Wednesday nights about these angels and the role they play. But these messengers, and he said, some have entertained these messengers. That's kind of staggering. Some have entertained these actual messengers of God. And he says, don't forget to entertain them. Don't neglect, don't refuse to extend hospitality in strangers in this brotherhood. It comes down to the very simple practical things of being friendly and gracious. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing how even the basic principle of being kind and being gracious to people, being friendly to people. It's, it seems to me as if it's disappearing right before our eyes. Just being gracious to people. And folks, I'm talking about being gracious to all people. Be gracious to that unbeliever. Be gracious to them. Understand that were it not for the love of Christ and the Holy Spirit of God converting open your eyes and your ears to the truth, you'd be in unbelief still. This idea of, I saved myself. You had no part in your salvation. Christ did it all. He accomplished it. This relationship of being kind and gracious. Graciousness is often demonstrated by just the sharing of the different provisions that God has provided you with. There's a couple of examples where messengers in the Scriptures were entertaining angels, if you will. The account of Abraham in Genesis 18. The account of Lot in Genesis 19. Jesus Himself walking with the two disciples in Luke 24. And them hosting, those two disciples hosting Jesus Himself. But in Matthew 25, and I find this to be, those other passages are very, very important as well. But in Matthew 25, our Lord makes a very uh, interesting comparison to this. He says, when, in verse 38 of Matthew 25, he said, When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, ye have done it unto me. This hospitality. This entertaining of strangers 
is the same as if we did it unto the Lord ourselves. This hospitality, this brotherly love, these exhortations to Christ-like practical godliness. Back in our text in Hebrews 13, 3, he makes mention of people that are in bonds. Now, this is very specific about who he's dealing with here. But you'll notice that as he continues these thoughts on here, and these thoughts continuing one after the other, these are all the evidences and the things that happen in the life of a believer. These are the fruits of faith. But in verse 3, he says, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Remember them that are in prison. Now, this is not just a general remembrance of anybody who is incarcerated, but these are people who are in bonds for the cause of Christ, specifically. Paul knew what it was to be bound for Christ. He knew what it was to be in adversity. He knew what it was to be without, how to abound and how to to be abased. He knew what all these things were. But the writer here says, remember them that are in bonds as if you are with them. You know, oftentimes I think we have become a little bit numb to what we actually see. Now this principle is true in a lot of different things. The more times you see something that used to disturb you, the more times you see it, the more accepting you become of it. It's happening all over this nation and it's happening. That's what you see going on. The more it's put in front of you, the more you see it, the more acceptable things become. It's repetition. Over and over and over again, as you see it, you become desensitized to it. This is the plan of those that are against the church of Christ. That's the plan. This is not coincidence. If I put these sinful things in front of you enough, I will get society to change its opinion on what it believes. We are living in a generation that's happening at an alarming rate. And you look back and you say, what is going on? Society's being desensitized. But we can also do that even in things that are being done for the cause of Christ. We hear account after account, we see on the television, we see on the computer of people being martyred for the faith, people being put in chains for the cause of Christ, and we keep seeing it and seeing it and seeing it, and then we just become, it's just the way it is. The writer says, remember them as if you are in bonds with them. What if that was you? What if that was you being imprisoned for the cause of Christ? See, the beauty that's here is this practical application that if there's any believer who's in prison for the cause of Christ, I should treat it as if I'm in prison. Well, I don't know them. It doesn't matter. That's why we try every time we meet to at least, in our feebleness, try to offer up a prayer for those who are in harm's way and those who are truly suffering for the cause of Christ. Because right now, folks, no matter what we believe, we're not suffering. We're not suffering to that level. He says, remember them and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. That adversity, maybe even just the day-to-day adversity that people go through. But this affliction, people who are afflicted, who suffer in the body, uh, people who are in need. If we love our brothers and sisters, we want to see them and we want to help work out whatever need they are. We should attempt to be suppliers for people's needs. 
Where greater place can someone look to than the church to help take care of the needs? You know, it's amazing. You look, study over history, you'll find out that the most beneficial organization to society over the years as a whole has been the church. And yet it's what society's pushing against saying, we don't want the church anymore. But the church itself should be doing these things. So we see these great principles. Again, as the subjects continue to change, verse 4, marriage is honorable in all. Now, that's marriage according to God's way, by the way. Folks, this church does not take, we do not take an unapologetic stand on this. We are not for gay, same-sex marriage in any way, shape, or form. It's an abomination to God. It always has been. It always will be. This marriage that's honorable is the marriage between a man and a woman, the way God established it to be. And it is honorable in all things. Again, desensitize. Desensitize. That's why you see churches starting to say, well, maybe same-sex marriage isn't so bad after all. Not this church. That's unloving. That's not unloving. The Scriptures say this is the way of God. And the beauty of marriage is the picture that it promotes. The picture of Christ's love for the bride. That's why the beauty is there. But it's honorable in all. Marriage should be held in honor. Genesis 2 tells us that marriage was instituted by God. John 2 shows us that the marriage where Jesus performed His first miracle, that marriage was honored with the presence of Christ. Marriage was chosen even under the inspiration of Scripture by Paul as a symbol of Christ's union with the church. Ephesians 5, verses 22-25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. This beauty that's here It's honorable. The bed undefiled. This sexual love that God has given between a husband and wife. No matter what society, no matter how society tries to corrupt this and make this dirty, I want you to understand, again, unapologetically, it is a holy, ordained gift of God. Churches are running away from these topics saying we shouldn't, our kids need to know these things. Folks, because your kids, and if you're not paying attention, your kids are being desensitized. They're being desensitized. I can't tell you how shocked I am at the age of children who already have formed an opinion on this very subject about marriage. They've been desensitized already. And if you think it's not intentional, you've got your head way too far in the sand. We were reading alarming articles over what schools are doing with your kids. And there are court rulings that are saying you can't stop it. Watch me. Amen. Folks, if you put your kid in that environment, you've got to understand what you're putting them in. Mm-hmm. Do you realize that's like on the top list of kindergarten and first grade is marriage? And accepting this? Oh, I thought it was just, I thought it was going to color. You better pay attention. It's an intentional, it's an intentional 
desire to make you look at these things differently. The Scriptures say, no, this is an honorable thing. This marriage and the proper consummation of, these, of this marriage, this is all supposed to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. The Apostle Paul, even in 1 Corinthians 7, deals with this subject. And again, this is a sermon in and of itself, but 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes about the importance of this. He says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment, for I would that all men were even as my myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after his, this manner and another after that. Paul simply says, in his own state, he said, not necessarily, but this is the case for you. Consider this, this gift. One of the grand struggles, again, I know, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not going too far in rabbit trails here, but one of the grand struggles is, is young people think that it's God's will for every single one of them to be married. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. There may be a time when a young man, he never gets married, but he goes into the world and he preaches the gospel and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with him. It doesn't make him strange. But you understand that the marriage, it's a gift. And if you are in this marriage, it is to be held in honor. And notice it was very serious about how if this was not honored... Hebrews verse 13 verse 4 says, But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. That's not a suggestion, that's a promise. God is not going to sit back and look at what's going on and look at the obsession. And that's what this is. And parents, I'm, I'm, maybe I should have warned us a little bit today. I know we're dealing with some sensitive subjects today. But this obsession with sexual things, Right? That's what you're seeing in society. And it's moved beyond obsession. It, it's moved to the point where this is the object of people's life is to how promiscuous can I be? They're trying to find new ways to be promiscuous. We're trying to invent new ways to put filthy things in our life. And it's being delivered to us. Adulterers and whoremongers, God will judge. Again, no offense to what you're carrying today, but a lot of the newer translations have changed adulterers and whoremongers because it was just too strong of language. But we'll sit and read and listen to things with a lot stronger language than that. Let's take it out of the Bible, shall we? Let's take it out. It's too strong. No, it's because man knows the judgment of God and doesn't like what he's hearing. The reality here is, as he puts this picture of these married believers, God will judge those who are promiscuous and adulterers, 
But married believers are to live together in love and in compassion and in submission and in protection and building their marriages and their homes for the glory of God. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Building our homes for the glory of God. And for the gospel. The matters of practical thinking. You thought this is just going to be a practical message, right? This is practical. Your doctrine without practicality to it's just doctrine. It's just knowledge. Verse 5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. This is dealing not just with what we say, but with our conduct and our character. It should be free from the love of money, free from craving the wealth and the things and worldly possessions, free from greed and a lust for more material things. Be content. I have a lot of conversations with people about contentment. I'm just not content. I'm just not happy with where God has me. I'm not content with my situation. I'm not content with my job. I'm not content with this. He says, be content. Be without covetousness. You know how hard it is to not covet? Again, praise God if you guys all if we've all got victory over this you can tell me how you totally did it i still struggle with covetousness it's still a problem even when i tell myself do not covet do not covet do not covet guess what i do i covet sometimes it's not even that obvious it just happens and i'm like you know what i'm doing i'm coveting after this and it's not just things folks you know one of the grand dangers is coveting someone else's life that will get you in more trouble than coveting after a thing. We see something and we think, I want that. If only I had that life, things would be so much better. You'd be looking somewhere else. Contentment comes in Christ alone. When I truly believe, and I more than sing it, more than say one of the five solas in Christ alone, do I really mean that? Is Christ really enough? Is he really your sufficiency? Or is it Christ plus a few worldly possessions that add to the sufficiency I have in Christ? That's often what's common for us. Doctrinally, Christ alone is enough. But what about practically? In Christ alone. Be content with your present position. Be content with your circumstances. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, the Lord has said. The psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now remember, it's not just a matter of that money is a problem. It's the love of money, right? Everybody that tries to say, well, you know, we, don't, we can't have any money. No, it's the love of money. That's where the warning is at. It's the love of it. It's the craving after. It's the desire that says this is the most important thing. 1 Timothy 6 Verse 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therefore be, let us be therefore with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil 
which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. We can be confident that the Lord is our shepherd and that we shall not want. Verse 6, notice he uses the word boldly. So that we may say boldly, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I mentioned this. The only way we really know how much fear we have of man is when what we have is being threatened. We can sit here today and we can say all we want. I have no fear of man and my faith in Christ. I don't fear what could happen. I don't fear man. We don't truly know what our level of fear is until it actually we're confronted with it. Those that are suffering martyrdom today and we're still gathered together, even though they were told you cannot preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They say we have to obey. They gathered together. Were they, fear, were they more fearful of man or more fearful of God? They were more fearful of God. And I think it is a sobering thought to realize that there have been hundreds, maybe more than that, of people who stepped out into eternity today for the cause of Christ. See, we are so me focused. We are so in the moment, in my little town, in my little, my yard, my life, that we don't think about the reality. Do we really not fear what man can do? Well, that's what the writer is saying. He is saying that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man, now notice this, what man shall do to me. Not what man may do to me, but what man shall do to me. It kind of goes along with verse 3 about being in bonds with those who are in bonds. We may boldly say. Now, why can we boldly say that? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can be confident and not be overly alarmed about what man can do. God is our helper. will meet every need. Spiritually, materially, and physically. I realize I don't consider myself old, but there has not been one time in my life that God has failed in any of those areas. Not one time. Now, does that mean I've never been in want? Nope. You see, it's not just about how much you have. Because even when you're in want, you're still not in need. And I can't explain that to you unless you've been in that place. You say, wait a minute, you don't have a dollar to your name. How are you not in want? Because God supplied all of my need. If you keep thinking in the physical realm, folks, and you keep thinking about this, and again, we talked about this in theology this morning, His kingdom is not of this world. If you're making all the plans for what you're going to do in this life, you're making plans for the wrong thing. His kingdom is of 
eternity. His kingdom is not of this world. But we can boldly say that Christ will meet our needs spiritually, materially, and physically. Verse 7, again, what seems to be another entirely different subject. He says, remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. Now, in this particular context, he's not talking about just governments in general. He's talking about those who have guided you and those who are, have some scriptural authority. We talked about power and authority of the local church this morning. But this is the reality that he says, remember them which have the rule, which who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. This is really humbling on a couple different fronts. First of all, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we willing to submit to those who have the rule over us? Secondly, if you have been given that responsibility, are you worthy of following? Because he says, those who have spoken unto you the word of God, their faith follow. Remember those that have pointed you to Christ. Remember those who have taught you the Word of God. Remember those who have guided you in understanding the Scriptures. Remember those who are responsible to see that the church continues in the way of Christ. Folks, if you have been fortunate enough to be parts of churches, whether it's this church's or even the churches you grow up all of your life, that has put Christ at the forefront and the center of everything you do, you should be eternally grateful. Because I'm telling you, there are, there are hundreds of churches in this state that are not putting Christ first. And if you have been guided and led and directed to keep Christ as the main focus, that is indeed a blessing. I've realized, and one of the great lessons of my life has been, that there has been times where people who I looked up to as spiritual mentors, who were guides, who were leaders, who was my pastor, who failed miserably, fell in sin, who at one point I used to say, you know what, there's absolutely nothing I gained from that man. I'm going to tell you something. And it was my sweet wife that said this. There was a time when that man was walking with God. <laughs> and what he imparted to you was right even though he fell. Folks, I'm telling you, that's one of the hardest lessons I've ever learned. Because at that point, I was like, I want nothing to do. All of that was bad. No, there are still things to this day. I'm like, you know what? I know who taught me that. And my heart still breaks for that man. I still struggle. I don't know what to do with him. I don't know how to handle it. This was, this was the man who taught me ministry. He taught me this is, this is how you do things. It's a man who sat down and he wrote to me and showed me. He said, here's how you conduct a funeral. Here's how you do a wedding. Here, it's still all here. But I keep thinking, but there was this colossal failure in his life. And I think but by the grace of God, I could fall. I'm not prideful enough to stand and say it could never happen to me. But every person who has imparted the truth of God unto you, remember them and be thankful for them. I think about so many people who had even the smallest part who were just pointing me to Christ. Remember them. To remember is not just to have them in mind, but to respect them. 
to remember, and even in cases, even like the difficulty I just shared with you, to pray for them. He says you can imitate or follow after the faith of a man who's truly walking. He's convicted, his conviction is, is that Christ is the only redeemer and the only giver of life. Folks, be very careful about imitating man. Imitate Christ. There's points in our life where we think if I could just have that person's walk, if I could just look like them, follow Christ in everything. We can follow them, why? Considering the end of their conversation. And that leads us right into our final verse. What is the end of their conversation? That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A person who's truly walking with Christ knows that that's their end purpose. The second heading for this final verse is this exhortation to consider Christ's glorious purpose. We might even add to that his glorious purpose and his promise. In verse 7, we see that the writer exhorts us to respect, acknowledge, and follow the faithful people who've guided us, whom the Lord in his perfect will gave to us. And he says, consider the object and the subject of their ministry. It's Jesus Christ. Folks, a faithful pastor, elder, whatever the case is, plurality of elders, a single pastor, whatever the case is, churches are in different places, they will preach Christ. And they will preach Christ often, and they will not apologize for it. They're not going to preach a philosophy. They're not going to preach a program. They're not going to preach a gimmick. They're going to preach Christ. I said one of, the, one of the, the, the most startling questions that has ever been asked to me is why do you preach Christ all the time? And this was from a professed believer. And I thought, I, I didn't know how to answer it. And his response was, was because we're a church. This, this, we don't need to hear the gospel all the time. Oh, well, yes, you do. You need to hear the gospel every single time we gather together. Put them in remembrance, Paul said, over and over and over again. Examine yourself to be sure you're in the faith. Again, if you think you're in the faith because you're at church this morning, you have the wrong thought. If you're in the faith, it's because of Christ. We unapologetically hold Christ up and we're going to preach Christ and we're going to de determine and say He is our sufficiency. The goal of the life and the ministry of a person who's walking with Christ would be Christ's purpose and Christ's promises. The glory of Christ should be the object of any gospel preaching church. The glory of Christ. The goal is not to be the biggest church. The goal here is not to be the biggest church in Springfield or the best known church in Springfield. That's never been our goal. It's not to be the most entertaining church. If you came to be entertained today, sorry. But you did hear Christ today. And you heard Christ put at the very forefront in the preeminence where God the Father says, so that He might have the preeminence. Christ has the preeminence. It is Christ you need to look to, not to me. I cannot forgive your sins. Don't repent your sins to me. 
Don't ask me to save you. I can't, I can't even determine if you are saved. All I can say is, has Christ saved you? Has He opened your eyes to the need? Have you repented of your sins and believed that Christ alone is the only remedy, the only way of salvation? You see, Christ being the same means He's the same in the glory that's always been at the forefront. Jesus Christ is all over the Old Testament. His offices, His purposes, His glory, His work yesterday, today, and forever is unchanging. In the beginning of the world, Jesus Christ is He who is referred to as the everlasting I Am. He is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He is the surety of His people. In the Old Testament, as we've learned through the book of Hebrews, He is the substance and the type and the picture and the shadows of all the sacrifices. It was all pointing to Christ. Today, in this gospel age in which we often refer to it, and sometimes that gets us in this place where we think, okay, now in this gospel dispensation, He's a little bit different. No, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God-man came to this earth, took on a robe of human flesh without ever ceasing to be God. Fully man, fully God. Took on a robe of human flesh. He who knew no sin became sin for us and died upon a cross, absorbed the full wrath of God. Not because He was a sinner, but because you are. And because I am. Jesus Christ did not die on a cross to make salvation possible. He actually accomplished salvation on that cross. He accomplished it. He finished it. When he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, that it is finished. The work of redemption was complete. He didn't say, I've done my part. Now you come and meet me the rest of the way. He didn't say, I've saved you 99%. You provide the other 1%. He didn't say, I provided 50. You provide the other 50. He said, it is me alone who has saved you that I might receive all the glory so that man may not boast. The minute I opened my mouth to boast in my salvation, I sinned against the holy God because I had nothing to do with it. Nothing. He's forever the same. He never dies. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His priesthood is an unchanging priesthood. Thank the Lord for that. And His love and His care for His people will also never change. The very last book of the Old Testament. And I think it's so interesting that God in His sovereignty and in His providence and His perfect knowledge uses one of the last chapters of the Old Testament to bring us this great reminder. Malachi 3.6 For I am the Lord. I change not. And then notice, Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. This is an, a remarkable declaration because nothing else, can, nothing else can claim that. When I say to you, I will never change, I just lied to you. I've changed a lot. <laughs> so have you. But he says, I change not. And because he changes not, it's what gives Paul hope in Philippians chapter 1 when he makes this remarkable statement, Philippians 1, 6, about God's work and the purposes of God. Philippians chapter 1. And look with me at 
verse number 6. Being confident of this very thing, that He, God, which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will continue and bring it to His purposes. Not only talking about our sanctification, but our glorification, all of it rides on this promise of Christ's immutability. Jesus Christ, the unchanging Jehovah. Christ, the one to follow and the one to trust. It is through Him, by Him, and for Him that all of the gracious riches that He offers, it is where all of our hope is found. Christ is the one that Satan and all of His angels will hate for eternity. Every wicked and every strange doctrine that is being created, and by the way, new doctrines created every single day. New cults are started every single day. Those cults are not just coincidence. Those cults are created with the intention of driving man away from the sufficiency that's found in Christ to get their eyes on something else, to turn their eyes away from the true gospel. There is no gospel if Jesus Christ changes. But because he changes not, the gospel I preach today is the gospel that if the Lord hastens returning, the same gospel 100 years from now, whoever's standing here or wherever it is can be preaching the exact same thing and it will not have to change or adapt no matter what society does. Folks, if every law in this country goes against Christianity, you can still preach Christ. I'm not a prophet, can't see into the future, but I think that's coming. I think there will be an absolute intent to completely obliterate and to wipe out all forms of Christianity, true Christianity, not Christian bookstore Christianity garbage. Not that. Not that. Joel Osteen's church won't be bothered, won't be touched. He's a wolf. He's fleecing. But real Christianity, it's going, to, it's, it's going to be an attempt to snuff it out. But you can still preach Christ no matter what society does. And we have an obligation to preach Christ, even when they say we can't. You see, that's where we have to obey God. We're going to preach Christ. Again, that's where it will really show, do we fear man more than God? That's how we'll know. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to hear the Word of God proclaimed and preached and taught. And we're thankful to know the words that are spoken today do not depend upon my eloquence or my ability to convey the words, but the power of the Spirit. And Father, we pray today that if there is a soul here, an individual here, who has yet to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray for a mighty work of the Spirit in their life. That the Spirit of God would open their blind eye, remove the scales that they may be able to see the truth, 
to hear the truth and that they would be made willing to believe this very day and that they would repent of their sins and believe on Christ alone for their salvation. Father, we are grateful that you have given such clarity to where and who salvation is found in. And Father, I do pray for believers this morning as well. I pray, Lord, that we will take heed and take heart to what we've heard, not just in this service, but even uh, the previous service, that we would remember these truths. But may we remember these practical applications. Father, we ask and pray now that as we bring this time of corporate worship to a close, that we would allow nothing into our minds and in our lives to forget them and to drive them away, but that we might leave here rejoicing and exalting Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen. If you would,